0: Alright, I'll do Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch.
1: Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that. Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50 F-I-F-T-Y at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatran Jai Moore. Today I'm speaking with Professor D. Max Mormon about his new book, The Japanese Buddhist World Map, Religious Vision and the Cartographic Imagination, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2022. Professor Mormon is a professor in the Department of Asian and Middle Eastern Cultures at Barnard College in Columbia University. His research interests are in the visual and material culture of
0: Japanese religions.
1: So welcome to the podcast today, Max.:
0: Thank you. It's lovely to be with you.:
1: Oh, of course, it's great to speak with you today. Um, our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become interested in Japan and the history of Japanese Buddhism?
0: Um, Well, I grew up in West Los Angeles. Uh, My father was an anthropologist uh, specializing in northern Thailand. Uh, So I sort of grew up around Asianists and uh, in a world where um, neither Japan nor Buddhism was seen as particularly exotic or unusual. Um, My parents had traveled by ox cart uh, to get to the village with no electricity or plumbing, uh, in which they did their research. Uh, you know, I took the Shinkansen to uh, national archives and university libraries and museums. So, um, it, it, it wasn't that unusual, uh, a thing to get interested in, I suppose.
1: thank you for sharing that it's great that uh, the interest in asia sort of was uh, transmitted from your father to you um, even though like thailand and japan were so are, are so different but i guess there is also some, there are also some themes that connect both places
0: Yeah. And now now that I actually I'm getting more interested in Southeast Asia because uh, uh, Tenjiku or India, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, uh, was, uh, you know, in in pre-modern Japan understood as including Southeast Asia. And in the 16th and 17th century, Tenjiku was a term that was understood as encompassing Siam and uh, and, you know, what the lands we now consider Vietnam and Cambodia Uh, So my my mind is traveling back there, too.
1: Thank you. Um, I would now like to turn towards talking about your new book, uh, The Japanese Buddhist World Map. Um, so this book is an illuminating history of cartographic representations of the world in the Japanese Buddhist tradition, um, stretching from the 14th to the 19th century. And, and something that I really appreciated about the book um, is the number of maps and illustrations in the book. And I think that, that really enriches uh, the reader's experience. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book and what, what you see as its major arguments and contributions?
0: Oh, yes. Um, and thank you for mentioning the maps and illustrations. And, and here I'm sorry that we're doing a podcast in audio and there is no visuals. Uh, but I mean, because the book is is very much about maps and illustrations. That is, it's very much about the power of maps and the culture of vision And in a sense, the book presents a kind of visual argument. Um, uh, In fact, the initial experience that led me to eventually write the book, that is, the initial trigger was seeing an image, seeing an image of the 14th century map that uh, certainly the first chapter is about, and really the rest of the book is about, you know, what happened from that map onward. Um, The uh, 14th century uh, map of the world, this large meter and a half square colorful painting on paper of an ovoid landmass surrounded by waves uh, A landmass so crowded with visual details and passages of text and a squiggling red line that it's nearly illegible. It has a little bite out of the side labeled China, but it doesn't have any content. Um, And the rest of it's divided up between sections that are labeled the five regions of Tenjiku or India. And the Japanese archipelago is this tiny little detail in the upper right corner. And it was seeing that thing and thinking, you know, the great hermeneutic question we all ask when we think deeply, what's up with that? Uh, That really got me going. So the book, uh, like My own journey begins from that 14th century image, which is, you know, for me, the Japanese Buddhist view of the world. I mean, it is a 14th century Japanese Buddhist view of the world and of Japan's place in it. And, you know, how rare to have something like this. So the book then just really traces the history of that image into the late 19th century. So. In a sense, we have through pictures, I mean, pictures with plenty of text on them as well, but sometimes without much, we have pictures of the Japanese Buddhist view of the world and of Japan's place in it from the 14th century to the 19th century. And nobody has ever really looked at these or written about them. And I thought there was, you know, quite a story here. Um, so what, my major arguments, well, I mean, in a sense, I'm arguing for um, a new understanding of Japanese Buddhist visual culture, a one that not only includes maps and diagrams and printed ephemera as worthy of analysis, uh, but more importantly, one that considers the objects of visual culture together with the theories and practices of visual culture. That is, the theories and practices of vision within Japanese Buddhist culture. Um, It uh, also arguing that the history of visuality in Japanese Buddhism and Elsewhere as well, is inseparable from the history of epistemology. So uh, the, uh, the 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 practices and theories of vision have become explicitly after after the encounter, I think, with uh, European materials, and perhaps, and this is something that you know I wish we had more information about but uh, I think also in terms of uh, European and Jesuit uh, theories of visuality and epistemology, become very much uh, articulated as uh, matters of theories of knowledge, Um, and also to see the history of cartography not as a history of science, but as a history of the imagination. And in Japanese history, at least, the history of a religious imagination. Anyway, those are some of the things I was sort of thinking through in the book.
1: Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's, it, as, as I mentioned, it's a very compelling and fascinating book. And you tap into this uh, this wonderful archive of um maps and illustrations and it, and i feel like it also your book also has it's it sort of it sort of has an appeal i think to people from different disciplines like i think people art historians people in religious studies historians and maybe beyond would all perhaps be interested um in your book um and and all that it sort of encompasses in this um long time period um so you mentioned a little earlier about how you traveled through shinkansen in japan so could you tell us a little more about your research for this book um so i imagine you did your research some of, at least some of your research in Japan, but where do you do your research and what sorts of archives and sources um, did you
0: use? Oh, well, um, you know, as anyone who's done any, any, any research in Japan, right, um, certainly any research based on images, that the images are all over the place. Uh, The ones that are in temple collections are very difficult, (laughs) sometimes impossible to access. The the earliest extant map, the one in Horyuji, I was very fortunate to have access to extremely high resolution color photographs (laughs) that were uh, actually printed at more than 100%. Uh, So I had, you know, larger than 100 percent detailed images of the earliest 14th century example and also very high resolution images of the other two Horyuji examples, uh, one of which I was uh, actually able to see in person. The other ones that I was able to see in person uh, were in university libraries and museums. uh, there were two that I was able to uh, use in the uh, University uh, Kyoto University Library. There are two in the uh, Kobe City Museum. Uh, there's one at uh, Reki the National Museum of Japanese History. Um, there's one at the uh, National Archives in Tokyo. Um, there's uh, uh, one at Chionin that I was able to see. Um, there's a very interesting one at Yukoku University Library. Um, there uh, there's one that's now the only one outside of Japan at the Art Gallery of South Australia that I happened to discover <laughs> on the antique market in Kyoto uh, when i was when I was in Kyoto for a year. Um, a, a friend of mine who was a, a, an art dealer there. Uh, and got a catalog of the uh, the local uh, what is it? It's sort of the 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 catalog of the art that's offered by the local consortium of dealers. You know, it is sort of relatively low level local stuff. And he said to me. Oh, you know, there's one of your egg maps in there. And I said, no, 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 can't be. There's only 12 of them. They're they all known. And he's like, Oh no, 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 no. There's one of them in there. And sure enough, there was. <laughs> and we were able to, uh, to convince the museum to, to purchase it. So now we can all go to Australia and visit it. So they're all over the place. And I was very, very lucky to have, um, uh, scholars, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and curators and uh, librarians uh, give me access um, and time to look carefully and 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 work at these uh, work on these maps in uh, in the libraries and museums of uh, Kyoto and Tokyo and uh, Kobe. Um, the printed materials are similarly in. Uh, accessible in university libraries, um, especially the, um, there's a couple of places that have large collections of of Japanese maps actually in North America, uh, UC Berkeley um, uh, and the Beans collection at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, um, there are, um, a, f- a few very important things that I was able to see at the Library of Congress, the Harvard Yen and, um, and the Kyoto University Library also has a very good map collection because it had very good <laughs> cartographic historians, uh, on the faculty who, uh, who left their collections there. Um, and there are also, uh, excellent, both, uh, map collections and collections of print materials in Buddhist astronomy um, at Yukoku University Library at Yokohama City, Museum, excuse me, Yokohama City University Library. Um, that's recently uh, has put a lot of its material online, has been publishing some excellent catalogs. Yeah. So yeah, you have to go everywhere to see this stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you were able to sort of cast your net, net wide and you were able to access sources from so many things, which is why you were able to sort of write such an, such a good book. Um, so so, so, so th- thank you for sharing all of that. Um, So going back to um, the map that you discussed um, uh, earlier uh, in the interview, so um, so Buddhism was rooted in India, but it had been transmitted to Japan through China and Korea. Um, And as you mentioned in the book, um, I think on page one, that India or Tenjiku, as it was historically known, represented an obscure object of religious desire, a land of origins from which they felt hopelessly removed um so could you tell us a little bit about this about the place of india within the japanese buddhist imagination and in and in what ways um india sort of was different in the buddhist imagination of japan from say a place like china
0: yeah um uh, the place of India in the Japanese Buddhist imagination is kind of one of the sustaining themes of the book. It was sort of, it was sort of one of the things that I was always wondering um, about. I mean, China is usually presented as the mirror of the other in which Japan has historically viewed itself, and um, you know, uh, and this is in no way untrue, uh, but for Japanese Buddhists especially, India was a very special place. It was the Holy Land. It was the sacred site of religious origins and authenticity. And unlike China, it was a sacred landscape that no Japanese before the 19th century had ever visited. And and this distant unknown quality was part of its mystique. It was a world beyond China. Um, uh, Ron Toby defines tenjiku as trans-kada. is basically everything beyond China. That's tenjiku. You know, it's, it's the world beyond. Um, but also for the Japanese and for other East Asians, it was also mediated by China. Uh, because the most important and extensive description of India and Central Asia uh, was the written account of Xuanzang, the seventh century Chinese monk and pilgrim. Uh, and it is the entire content of that text of Xuanzang's uh, record of the Western regions that uh, composes the contents of. The manuscript map, that is passages of his text uh, surround the map in these sort of shikishi-like blocks of text around the borders, and also all of the text, every single word that is inscribed on the map comes from Xuanzang's text. So in a sense, China is, you know, always there. Um, but India is a place apart. And for, for Japanese Buddhists, it um, um, was always a very uh, special place in the imagination.
1: Thank you for sharing that. That's really intriguing um, to know. And it's great that now there are scholars like you and others who are being able to sort of um, um, do more research on um, India within the Japanese imagination and then the, specifically the Japanese Buddhist imagination um, from the medieval and early modern period to the modern period. Um, so again, returning back to this map, um, which, you, which, we, which you've been talking about, um, so as you mentioned, it's um, preserved at Horyuji, a temple in Nara. Um, so could you tell us a little, some more details about it? Like who created it? What what does it depict? Um, and what does it tell us about Japanese Buddhism at the time of its creation?
0: Um, it's huge. It's, it's over a meter and a half square. Um, it's painted on paper and right now it is like many of its copies or many of the other examples uh, mounted as a hanging scroll, but also like all of the other examples it's painted on paper that sh- that's clearly been folded so it's a it has historically been folded up as a smaller in a small format. Um, it's untitled, it's unsigned, it's undated. It's commonly known as the Go Tenjikuzu, or the map of the five regions of Tenjiku, or the five Tenjikus, which is the traditional uh, name for, well, i would say india but it is it is in no way limited by the confines of of of, of the modern nation of india or even the subcontinent uh, in that it includes uh, it includes uh, southeast asia it includes central asia um it is it is uh, it is a, basically the world of the buddha uh, it is a very buddhist term um and Actually, the one cart, the, the cartouche, if it has a title, uh, the cartouche on the farthest right is labeled Nansen Bushu, which is Jambudvipa, which is the great southern world continent within uh, classical Indian and Buddhist cosmology, which is our world. So it is, um, it is a flat, ovoid world. Um, But, as I said, there are other copies, and in addition to this earliest example, there are two later copies at Horyuji, uh, one of which bears an inscription stating that it was copied from the map made by the monk Jukai in 1364, and kept in the sutra repository at Horyuji. Uh, so it's a later inscription on a later copy that provides the name of the painter and the date of production. And this painter uh, was a monk of Horyuji and Kofukuji, two uh, very uh, important monastic and scholarly institutions that were linked um, in the 14th century. Uh, institutions who revered Xuanzang as their Chinese patriarch, um, and, uh, and who, whose journey and training in India uh, they took to be uh, sort of to distinguish their school above all other Japanese Buddhist schools which had Chinese but not Indian pedigrees. Uh, Jukai uh, was known to be a scribe and a painter. We have uh, evidence of texts that he copied out. Um, We have references to paintings that he made at Horyuji. And although this is the earliest extant example of the map, it clearly isn't the first copy. That is, it too is a transcription. Uh, So we have, we have no original, we have only a, you know, a history of copies. There are the kind of transcription errors on the map, you know, where you, by misreading a character, you drop a stroke or so enough so that it's clearly been uh, copied from another, which might have been Korean or Chinese prototype. Um the content of it, as I said, is entirely drawn from Xuanzang's record of the western region, so it's a it's a visualization of a text, but an encyclopedic text, you know Sh- Xuanzang's record is hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's a detailed geography of. Uh, you know, of, uh, of a seven-year pilgrimage route of all the sacred sites and legends along the way and the political geography and the demography and the ethnography of every kingdom through which he passes. Um, all of the buildings and images and stupas are drawn there, the mountains, uh, the streams, the lakes, you know, groves of trees. And... Um, every place name in a cartouche um, a red line that marks out his route so you can actually follow along with your finger and sort of complete or trace schwenzang's pilgrimage route and i in, in order to sort of read the map i had to do this i had i had the schwenzang's text open You know, on the desk to the right of me and on the left of me, I had a a blowout print up of sections of the map. And with one finger, I was like following the the text line here and the other finger, I was following it here. And I realized, you know, I'm probably doing what the monks did. That is, I'm sort of moving back and forth between the text and the image um, and doing a certain kind of reading and seeing and uh, sort of vacillating back and forth between text and image, which which is a very particular kind of experience. So I think, I mean, that's what I, that's what I meant when I said that um, sort of the mode of visuality is an important part of understanding, you know, this kind of object and the experience of this object. It's, it's, it's an object that can only be appreciated in its entirety from stepping back and seeing it at a distance right i mean it's it's a very very large map and you can only see the whole thing if you're standing a couple of meters back but if you're standing back enough to see the whole thing you can't read the detail you can't follow the path for that you have to go up close so you're constantly you know oscillating back and forth between, there's a sort of choreography of reading uh, that goes on here. So there's a certain ritual to uh, the way in which the map is viewed or experienced, uh, which, which is, I think, very important to its kind of, you know, to its modality of reception and the way that it works.
1: Thank you. That's really fascinating to hear. Um, and I, of course, one thing that you sort of men- mention in the book many times is about how this particular map and its it, it, the, it's copies of a 14th century map of a 7th century Chinese pilgrim who traveled to India. Like it's a 7. It's a 14th century Japanese map of a 7th century Chinese pilgrim who traveled to India. So in some sense, it's sort of binding all of these places together, even though like the in terms of time and space, they're so far apart from each other
0: yeah that and then the fact that 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 map w- remains i mean it's transcribed copied exactly as it is without any change into the nineteenth century right uh, now we've got an even greater distance of time uh in which this you know in which this seventh century view of the world is being uh is being replicated and experienced uh into the 19th century with still you know a world in which there is a square lake at the center and four animal heads made of different precious substances coming out of each side of the lake and a different river coming out of the mouths of each animal that circles the lake and flows to the four corners of the world. I mean, this kind of cosmological detail uh, is preserved into the 19th century. So, yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, so um, something else that we were able to get from these maps is about how Japanese Buddhists located their own country, that is Japan, within the Buddhist world. Um, so could you tell us a little more about that?
0: Um, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that's that's curious about the map. That is, it is one world continent, right? Uh, Jambudvipa is one land mass Our world is one landmass. And yet, off in the corner, there is the Japanese archipelago. And I've brought this up with every art historian of Japan I've ever met. Well, ever met since I started working on this. And gosh darn it, I think this is the earliest painted representation of the entirety of the Japanese archipelago, full stop. I mean, first of all, it is the earliest Japanese map of the world, okay? But this is also the earliest representation of Japan. And I think that's pretty significant. But it's also the first representation of Japan and the place of Japan in the world, And we have it in the upper corner. Now, Japan is part of the world, but it's also kind of a small and marginal part of the world. Now, within the the sort of the Buddhist language of the map and its textual world, uh, Jambudvipa is made up of the five tenjikus, and uh, 16 great countries, and 500 middle-sized countries, and 10,000 small countries, and countless remote countries scattered like millet grains. And and that phrase, a remote land small as a millet grain, or zokusan hendo, was a common term uh, for Japan, certainly within Buddhist texts from the Uh, from the 10th through the 14th century. So so there's this one term for Japan as this, you know, tiny remote land so far from the Indic Buddhist center of the world, Um, a world which is seen as three countries, you know, India, China, and Japan and this is of course an indocentric world map that we're talking about but at the same time at the same period you have another sort of discourse of japan of the great country of japan within jambudvipa and the expression is non senbushu that is jambudvipa non senbushu dai nihon koku so these two kind of opposing vocabularies for Japan's place within the Buddhist world um, are operating simultaneously, that, that, that this sort of polarity is in a kind of continual state of oscillation. And so I think that the place of Japan is is always unsettled, Um, but it is always, um, it is always defined, and always defined cartographically uh, in Buddhist terms. Uh, Certainly um, from the, from the late 13th and early 14th century, there is um, there is a proliferation of Buddhist texts that that uh, about the uh, the Nara period Buddhist bodhisattva visionary monk known as Gyoki, who sees the shape of Japan as a single pronged vajra, and also as a wish fulfilling jewel. These two central. Uh, ritual impre- implements, right? Um, and the fact that Japan is a single-pronged Vajra means that Buddhism will always flourish in the country. Um, and this kind of language and imagery is written on the earliest maps of Japan that portray and describe the country as a single-pronged Vajra. So there is... Um Japan's place in the world then, at least um, within Buddhist texts and Buddhist images, and I haven't found any other texts that describe it otherwise, is um, is seen within a Buddhist world sometimes at a marginal place, but even then, uh, that marginality is often inverted. Um, the three-country model, which places Japan as the at the end point, is also, you know, in the 14th century flipped or inverted, where Japan becomes the root uh, and the origin of uh, China and India. Um, so I think that that this uh, 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 instability. Uh, of Japan's place in the Buddhist world is something ongoing, uh, and I think that kind of that fuels um, a lot of the thinking and the imagining that um, that I'm sort of trying to describe the history of in this book.
1: So, so you mentioned that um, when you've spoken to art historians, um, you've you've sort of um, emphasized this fact that this particular representation of Japan is the first um, representation of the Japanese archipelago. So, I have a quick follow up question to that: um, How geographically accurate is the map, or is the representation of Japan like from the point of view of geography?
0: Um, it's actually it's actually pretty darn good. Um, I have a, I, I have a detail blow up of it. Um, and the interesting thing is it's, uh, it's a view of Japan, uh, you know, from the South. It's a view of Japan from outside Japan. Uh, so uh, first you, in the foreground is Kyushu and Shikoku. And then behind it is uh, a much larger lump of honshu um, and actually kyushu and shikoku are 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 pretty you know accurately formed now it's it's not a view from above right so it's not um it's not it's not mapped from above as we would imagine uh in a modern map um it's uh, it's viewed from a sort of an above distance in a landscape perspective. Um, and who would see this? I mean, that's the sort of thing one wonders. Whose view is this? Is it a view from a ship offshore? Was there always that detail? That's really I interesting. Know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not to think about.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a there's uh there's a much more simplified uh uh version of a uh a map of Tenjiku, what's called a map of Tenjiku according to Vasubandhu, um that um that appears in uh slightly later in 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 Japanese encyclopedias, and the earliest example uh, of it is in a a Buddhist cartographic and cosmological manuscript uh, in the Harvard collection, dated to fourteen oh two. So, you know, uh, a little bit later than the earliest map, uh, the representation is much 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 more simplified. Um, but it bears certain commonalities with the more detailed map, and the um, what 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 takes the place of the area, the sort of island-like area outside of the continent on that map is not Japan but Korea. Uh, so there's some mm-hmm. even more things to think about there. Uh, I look at and discuss that in uh, in a later chapter in the book.
1: Thank you. Um, so in Chapter 3, um, you trace out antecedents and after images that is possible precursors and replications of the oldest extant uh, world map at Horyuji that you discussed in Chapter 1. And I think you've already talked about this in a little bit of detail. Um, so could you tell us more about this culture of copying and replicating maps um, and its significance in the period that you cover? <laughs>
0: Oh yeah. Um, yes. Well, as I said, the earliest extant is certainly not the earliest. Um, there is a 12th century Korean inscription that describes a map of the five regions of Tenjiku based on Xuanzong's record of the Western regions that was presented to the King. Um, there are some earlier Chinese print sources that are much smaller and much simpler, uh, and don't give us much to compare it to. So the prototype remains elusive, and, um, and, uh, and, a, and a search for origins is maybe not that uh, productive, or at least it's not what I'm interested in, because the cultural significance of this image is in its afterlives. Um, and as you suggested, replication uh, in Japanese painting, and especially in Buddhist culture, is a very significant practice. Uh, it's an act of reverence that generates merit, as well as a facsimile that bears an ontological relationship to its prototype. Uh, Don McCallum has called this the replication tradition in Japanese Buddhist art. So. Um, so there is not this uh, fixation on unique original works of art uh, that that perhaps the I don't know the European uh, Romantic tradition of art history uh, once had, but but rather that that objects with religious power uh, can maintain and transfer that power through replication, uh, the same way that the copying of sacred texts uh, carries the power of that text, the copying of sacred images carries the the power um, of those images. And um, there are 13 known copies extant, and there certainly must have been many more. and it's interesting because only one of these 13 copies can be dated to before 1600. So all, almost all of them date from a period when the Japanese were already familiar with European cartography of the world. Um, and yet they show no change to what is essentially you know, a 7th century picture of the world. So the the goal is clearly replication, uh, to be as accurate as possible, not to make any change or innovation. This is except for one rather um, unusual copy that I do discuss in the book, but I'm not going to give a spoiler here.
1: Yeah, th- thank you. That's actually the perfect segue to, what was going to what's going to be my next question, um, which is about Japan's encounter with European Christians. Um, so in the 16th century, Yo- J- Japan had its first encounter with European Christians. So not, introduced not just new technologies, but also new cartographic information. Um, And with that, uh, with the circulation of uh, European style world maps, regions far beyond continental Asia, like Europe, Africa, and even the Americas entered the Japanese imagination of the world. So how did Japanese Buddhist cartographers and map makers negotiate with these new cartographic perspectives and with this new vision of the world?
0: Yeah, yeah. European cartography and European world maps, as you said, first arrived in Japan with the missionaries and the merchants in the late uh, 16th century um, in the form of prints and atlases and globes. And we know from Jesuit sources that these uh, materials were an essential element uh, in the Jesuit mission in Japan. Uh, just as Matteo Ricci's world map was an essential element of the Jesuit mission in China. Uh, Ricci's map appeared in Jesuit churches in Japan uh, by 1605, uh, only two years after it was first printed in China. Um, And um, other world maps that were drawn from a, a combination of European print sources not from any single source, um, were adapted to the scale and format of folding screens, in the Jesuit painting academies in Japan, and in Kano school ateliers. Um, for the for the Jesuits, as for the Buddhists, cartography was inseparable from cosmology and the. Uh, the earliest, uh, Jesuit textbooks for, um, the, the seminaries in Japan, uh, begin with, uh, begin with cosmology. Um, and, and Matteo Ricci's map, uh, has, uh, details that explain the cosmology of the global earth and, um. You know, and the sublunar realm, uh, the outermost realm of which is that of God and the angels. Um, so cosmology and cartography are, are inseparable here. Now, these map, European maps and, and details of European cosmology that were painted on these quite beautiful and luxurious uh, screens... Uh, would have only been seen by a very limited number of elites. Um, It wasn't really until the late 17th century uh, that European-style woodblock print maps uh, based on simplified versions of Ricci, known as Bangkokazu, were first published and commercially sold but but even with the early 17th century painted map screens uh the cartography is not entirely european uh, japanese screen paintings are produced as you know in pairs right and many of the world screens that is many of the screens painted with european style world maps are paired with a screen painted with Japanese-style maps of Japan. And a number of these maps of Japan, well, an example that I illustrate in the book uh, that's in the Tokyo National Museum and is dated around 1625, pairs a world map, a European-style world map, entitled in Latin, Typus Orbis Terrarum, right, a global world, with a map in Japanese titled Nansen Bushu Daini Hong Koku, Great Country of Japan within the continent of Jambudvipa, and includes the inscription, the shape of the country is like a single prong to Vajra, because of this Buddhism continues to flourish. So you have in the same set of screens, you know, one bearing in text and images the, the visual language of the European world with another in text and images representing Japan within an entirely Buddhist cartographic and cosmological uh, context. So these were not necessarily seen as contradictory. And I think that's one of the things that um, that I discovered really throughout the book. And one of the arguments I'm trying to make is that um, really throughout Japanese history, there there was a sort of cartographic pluralism and I guess in that sense, a cosmological pluralism. That is, you could have a Buddhist map and a Christian map uh, together, um, and it was not seen as a conflict. Um, The distinctively Buddhist response to the European mapping of the world had to wait um, until the beginning of the 18th century, and that's when we see the first... Japanese Buddhist world map appear in print.
1: That's the, again the perfect segue to my next question about um, the Tokugawa period in the um, early modern period, um, which was a period in, the, in, the, like, in like, during the 18th century during the Tokugawa Shogunate, which um, was like, in the middle of the Tokugawa Shogunate, like increased literacy and the emergence of a wider public commercial and print culture meant that Japanese Buddhist maps were no longer um, limited to temples and temple archives, but circulated more widely in society. Um, So could you tell us more about this transformation and about um, this new cartographic and print culture in early modern Japan?
0: Yes, yes. I mean, a lot of of people, uh, art historians, historians of Japanese prints and printing, historians of the book, uh literary historians have written about uh, you know the uh, the boom in, in printing and literacy um in the Edo period. And um along with this was a boom in the printing of uh, printing and uh, purchasing of maps. Uh, as mm-hmm. I said the uh, the earliest European style world maps uh, were printed from about sixteen uh, fifties through the sixteen seventies, and in seventeen ten was the first woodblock printed Japanese Buddhist world map. Um, again, it was huge. It was one hundred and twenty by one hundred and forty centimeters, about the size of these enormous manuscript maps. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just as detailed, covered with details and text. Um, it was produced by um, um, a rather important Buddhist scholar monk uh, who published many, many books uh, and also uh, uh, critiques of, of other books, uh, a monk named Hotan. Um, and it remained in print for over 100 years. It went through two publishers, um, and it also spawned various simplified pirated editions through the 19th century. It was also divided up and published in different sections of uh, probably the most popular and most important encyclopedia of the Edo period, Terajima Ryoan's, Wakan um, Sansaizue. The popular editions give you a sense of the sort of um, cartographic pluralism um, that I was mentioning a moment ago. Uh, one of the popular editions uh, uh, was published uh, by a publisher named Ahonya Hikoemon in 1744, uh, that is, uh, uh, 30 four years after the initial publication of the large format uh, original. In the very same year, Honya Hikoimon published a popular version of a Matteo Ricci style world map. So you could walk into a bookshop and buy from the same publisher issued in the same year, a Buddhist world map or a Christian world map. But this Christian world map, if you look closely, has in the center of the Indian subcontinent a lake with four swirling rivers coming out of it, the mythic lake Anavatapta that comes from Buddhist cosmology and is found at the center of the Hotan map as well as all of the other manuscript maps. So there's a... There's a hybridity even within the European-style map. Anyway, the large map, the Hotan map, combines the cartography of Xuanzong's India and Central Asia. That is the cartography that we've seen in all of the manuscript editions of the map with an expanded East Asia and Southeast Asia and a marginalized Europe That is, in the upper left corner, not unlike the way that Japan figured as a marginalized presence in the upper right-hand corner of the manuscript map. And uh, a tiny sliver of what is not labeled, but clearly is North America on the right margin and a tiny island uh, in the lower right corner uh, that is the South American continent. So in addition to sort of marginalizing Europe and the Americas uh, and centering the world on Buddhist India and maintaining the, you know, mythic lake at the center of the world with the four animal heads and the four rivers that come out of their mouths, the uh, Hotan's woodblock printed map also includes an extensive uh, Kambun preface in which, in which cartographic and epistemological arguments are sort of coming together for the first time. And he argues that the Buddhist power of vision sees the world as it truly is, and he starts to use the language of the wisdom eye of the sage, you know, sees the 10,000-fold world. And he starts to use this language of uh, of the five eyes of Buddhist vision, which is a language that then gets taken up later in, in the 19th century by the people advocating for Buddhist astronomy that that argues that Buddhists see the world in a way qualitatively different from Western astronomers who rely on the human eye rather than on the heavenly eye or the Dharma eye or the Buddha eye.
1: Thank you. Um, so um, this, the, the Edo period um, um, is, is, is sort of, many people think of it as, you know, like Sakoku or like closed country when uh, Japan was supposedly isolated from the rest of the world, but actually like there, this was also a time when there was all sorts of information from through, you know, the Dutch merchants or through other uh, means that, that all sorts of European information information from Europe and the outside world was actually uh, coming into Japan. Um, and um, so my, my question, um is about some something that you've already talked about, about the links between uh, ideas of Buddhist cartography um, and their linkages with Buddhist cosmology. Um, so there were, of course, as you were m- mentioning, like these polemical criticisms of uh the Buddhist of the Buddhist cosmological worldview um, and this engagement with science, technology, new me- mechanical devices in the 19th century. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about this, about the Buddhist responses? Um, to these polemical criticisms of their cosmological worldview?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, in a sense, Euro- European cosmology comes in through uh, Chinese texts and um, Chinese translations of uh, European texts on uh, science and astronomy. And, um, you know, uh, and also with uh, later with Rangaku and the translation of, of, of Dutch texts um, and pop, the popularization of those texts by people like Shiba Koukan, um, who also issues prints showing these uh, maps and diagrams of... Uh, of astronomical and cartographic uh, images, um, there began a sort of significant critique of of Buddhist cosmological um, claims by uh, well by Confucians by um, by by Kogaksha, by Kokugaksha. Um, and um, and a Buddhist defense of uh, classical cosmological models, uh, you know, drawn from classical Indian uh, Buddhist scholastic texts like Vasubandhu's Abhidharmakosha, uh, most particularly, and uh, and Buddhists began turning to these classical Indian sources and uh sort of drawing diagrams calculating mathematically the uh arguing for uh, the explanation of eclipses and such things using um these um these indian cosmological texts in the face of ptolemaic and later Copernican astronomy. Now you remember the Buddhist Earth is flat. It's not a globe. Uh, So there Mm -hmm. are some fundamental issues here that need to be overcome. And uh, one figure in particular, uh, Fumon Ensu, uh, is a sort of driving figure in this movement called Bondeki of, of of buddhist astronomy and and uh, he and his students uh, make diagrams and maps and eventually machines that is a clockwork driven uh orreries and planispheres working models that show how the sun and the moon rotate around mount sumeru at the center of the universe and uh and above the four world continents and in particular our southern world continent of jambudvipa and calculate uh the days of the year the change of the seasons the movement of the uh of the celestial houses um into a kind of buddhist science and technology and this is these are these are buddhists not being anti-modern or anti-science but more modern <laughs> more science that is sort of out trying to out-science the the European scientists, the, uh, th- the man who eventually produced these clockwork models of the Buddhist universe was Tanaka Hisashige, the greatest clockmaker of the age, the man who made uh, automata, the man who made the, um, the mannen doge the million-year clock, the man whose shop eventually became became a Toshiba corporation. So so there is something kind of deeply scientific um, about this Buddhist response to uh, cosmological critique.
1: That's really intriguing and fascinating to hear about these, um, these Buddhist engagements um, and sort of um, responses to science and technology and the emergence of the sort of Buddhist science and technology. And also, like your, as you mentioned, like the links to the present day to the Toshiba Corporation. And I found that really compelling and fascinating as I was reading about those clocks and those various mechanical um, devices that you discuss uh, in chapter six. So um, the forced opening up of Japan to Euro-American powers in 1853, followed by the Meiji Restoration of 1868, um, are these major watersheds in Japanese history. Um, And like, you know, as you mentioned in the book, like uh, the Japanese Buddhist world was forever changed or forever reshaped by these events of the 1850s and 1860s. Um, So could you tell us about how Buddhist cartography and cosmology in Japan were impacted by these world-changing events?
0: Um, Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, as you know, um, the sort of physical and legal and ideological construction of the modern Japanese nation-state entailed the physical, legal, and ideological construction of, the Japanese state religion um, that we now call Shinto, and also the process of this construction required the the deconstruction, physical, legal, and ideological, um, of Buddhist institutions, um, and this followed the pattern of a long Confucian and nativist critique of Buddhism as a foreign evil, and in response, many. Japanese monks sought to align uh, the Buddhist tradition and Buddhist institutions with the state and instead identify Christianity, not Buddhism, as the foreign evil seeking the downfall of the Japanese state. Mm -hmm. And central to this sort of form of Buddhist nationalism or Buddhist nationalist attack on Christianity Um, was a critique of Western science and especially Western astronomy and the theory of the global Earth. And with this came a a resurgence of classical Buddhist cosmology in the sort of Bakumatsu and Meiji period um, in the face of what was seen, you know, quite obviously as a religious and a geopolitical threat. And, And the language is very similar to that that you see uh, in response, or they're certainly referring to the religious and geopolitical threat of the, uh, of the Catholics uh, in the 16th century, uh, you know, and the, um, when they're talking about the, the Protestants uh, and the other European geopolitical powers that are trying to, uh, you know, invade Japan in the late 19th century, so there's there's a there's a there's a sort of a boom in in uh in goho literature in defense of the dharma literature mm-hmm. um in the bakumatsu and meiji um and 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 much of this uh in which it's a defense of buddhism tied to a defense of the state um one of uh when I was looking through some of this, there's there's one text called the uh, Goho Shindon, the New Thesis on the Defense of the Dharma, um, written by uh, a disciple of Ensu, uh, the early uh, 19th century uh, figure who uh, is an advocate of Buddhist astronomy. And um, I'm, I look at it and I'm expecting to see, you know, kind of a standard argument for Buddhist astronomy with the diagrams of all of the cosmology of the Abhidharma Kosha and that sort of thing that that most of them have. And it opens with diagrams of what look like 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 basic physics textbook. And I, you know, I don't think I ever took physics in high school. Um, so I didn't quite know what they were. So I I took them to a physics professor (laughs) at my college and I said, um, these look like they must be something. What are these pictures of? And he said, oh yeah, yeah. These are basic diagrams of, you know, the, uh, the Snell effect and the such and such. and You know, they're, they're pictures of things like, you know, you put a stick in water and, uh, the part of the stick underwater looks like it's in a different place or uh, you know, you look at a candle uh, th- a candle light through a prism and it diffracts in three different places. Um, or you look at something in the distance over, over heat, and you get a mirage effect, the sort of the basic optical effects um, in physics. And there are all of these diagrams. You you know you look at uh, you look at something uh, through a globe, and it you know you look at something through a, a pinhole, a camera obscure, and it appears upside down. These are used in this defense of Buddhism: the the basic effects of physics to argue for the flawed nature of human vision on which Western astronomy relies. And the diagrams, which don't look particularly Japanese, it turns out, come from a a handbook of physics and optics that that was written by a British medical missionary in China and then translated into Japanese, written to introduce basic Western science to his Chinese medical students. So this Japanese Buddhist is using a handbook of Western science that was written by a Protestant missionary in an attempt to convert the Chinese to Christianity against the missionaries. Uh, and against Christianity. That is, using the technical and visual vocabulary of Western science, uh, sort of turning it against the missionaries to disprove their own scientific arguments and instead prove the truth of Buddhist cosmological claims. So this is a rather sort of sophisticated uh scientific argument it wasn't what i expected to find i mean another example is um sada kaiseki who you may actually know because he's quite famous as a as a sort of bakumatsu meiji nationalist and uh, and and theorist of of economics and many other things he ran his own popular newspaper and was kind of a uh, popular intellectual uh, and on many things, uh, but he was um, he was also um, you know a Buddhist priest and an advocate of Buddhist astronomy up until up until the very end. He um, he also designed uh, one of these machines to prove uh, the truth of Buddhist cosmology with the fantastic name of a device to represent the equivalency of the apparent and the real which sounds like a philosophy machine that was produced in 1877 also made by tanaka hisashige of toshiba um to uh to prove actually what it explains visually uh mechanically is it explains the difference between the way in which the world looks to the human eye and the way in which the world really is that is in terms of cosmology so it explains that 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 gap right that difference between the apparent and the real and, um, and even though the Ministry of Religious Education prohibited the teaching of the Mount Sumeru universe in schools in 1877, in 1878, this machine, which proves the workings of the Mount Sumeru universe, was proudly displayed in the first national industrial exhibition in Ueno Park, the national showcase for the most advanced technologies of Japan's industrial modernity. So this stuff really doesn't go away and runs up against certain inherent contradictions uh, really up to the very end Of the 19th century that force us to really think um, about questions of, well, Buddhism and modernity in the 20th.
1: Absolutely. This, um, this engagement or these responses um, from Buddhism or the Buddhist engagements and responses um, to science and technology and this Buddhist responses to modernity are, you, you know, they're, they're deeply fascinating. And um, I mean, I think that that's another a contribution of your book that it, it can be helpful to think about things that happen even beyond the scope of your book into the late 19th and early 20th centuries or through the 20th century. Um So the last few lines with which you end your book are very striking um, and very vividly sum up the book. Um, Could I ask you to uh, read these last five lines and share any concluding thoughts that you may have um, uh, 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 about the history that you discuss in this book?
0: Oh, wow. Um, Sure. Well, I can definitely read the lines. I don't know if I have any thoughts. Let me see. Let me start (laughs) by reading the lines. Um, Yet throughout the centuries of replication, transformation, and mechanical reproduction, one constant endured. The Japanese Buddhist world map remained a site of transcultural encounters, exchange, contestation, and appropriation as well as grounds for the negotiation and articulation of Japanese Buddhist identity. Hmm. Well, that's a rather long sentence. Um, Well, I think I agree with that. Um, I think that, I think that the issue of transcultural encounters and exchange um, is important. Um, and I think resonates sort of throughout the 500 year history of this map. Um, that is, there's, uh, there is a constant pattern of exchange and encounter, uh, across and within cultures. That is, um, cultures of India and China and Japan, and also cultures of Europe and the Americas. And in that exchange, also patterns of contestation and appropriation.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And throughout that, issues of Japanese Buddhist identity are being negotiated and articulated. I mean, I think we see that, you know, up to the very end with those sort of, the sort of tortured, uh, the tortured negotiations and struggles um, of uh, the, uh, you know, the Buddhist science of the late 19th century where Japanese Buddhists are, making a place for themselves in a world that does not seem of their making, a world very different from from the world of Indian and Chinese traditions with which the map began. But those issues of those issues of cultural and religious identity um, are still very much at issue. Yeah.
1: Thank you. I think um, these lines really sort of sum up your book in a very, very, very good way. And they sort of, you know, help us to reflect um, on the themes and topics that you've discussed in this book. Um, so, so thank you, Max, for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Uh, before we end, could you tell us what you are working on right now? And what's next for you?
0: Mm. Uh, what I'm working on right now is um, is a project on oaths. That is divine punishment oaths. Uh, this is uh, a religious and legal practice that uh, that was carried out oh from the thirteenth through the 19th century, hopefully it, the book won't be another, you know 500 year uh, project. Um, oaths that were uh, inscribed on the back of religious talismans that were issued by temples and shrines, that were sealed in blood, that were performed orally uh, in front of temples and shrines, in front of the altars of temples and shrines, in front of witnesses, and were also uh, inscribed, uh, swearing uh, the truth of a statement or a promise to be kept, uh, that were performed by, oh, people of all. Uh, of all classes and of all uh, uh, social distinctions, by merchants swearing, uh, merchants and tradespeople swearing to uh, honesty in business, uh, by warriors swearing their loyalty uh, to lords, uh by, um, by litigants uh, swearing affidavits to the truth of statements in court by uh, by officials in oaths of office uh, and by uh, by lovers uh, swearing their eternal <laughs> devotion to each other and also between prostitutes and patrons. Uh, so, uh, that's it, it's, uh, it's religious practice in the social domain.
1: Thank you. That sounds like a really promising and fascinating project. And I hope um, I get a chance to read it, uh, read your work when it comes out in the the next few years. Um, And I also hope that uh, the listeners to this podcast um, read your book. Um, uh, So this was an interview with Professor D. Max Mormon about his book, The Japanese Buddhist World Map. Religious Vision and the Cartographic Imagination, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press uh, this year in 2022. Um, So thank you, Max.
0: Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure.